Seahawks fans, wherever you may be. Welcome back for another edition of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. Join your host, Bill Alpstead, and co-host, sports writer and football analyst, Keith Myers, as we talk Seahawks football. Seahawks fans, welcome back to another edition of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Alfstead, here with Keith Myers and special guest today, Dana O'Gorman from Our Turf Football and the uh, Real Hawks Talk. Is that is that what it is? Real Hawks Real Talk? Real Hawk Talk, is, yeah. Uh, podcast podcast yeah. <laughs> uh, with the Hawk Logger crew. Uh, welcome into the show. Welcome back, Keith. Let's talk Seahawks football. Let's do it. I'm, I'm excited to... Um you know, dive back into all of this and, and it, it's the off season for the Seahawks, which is, you know, other, other shows take that time off. We don't. And this is actually, you know, one of my favorite parts is, of the year, yeah, This was the fun. getting ready this for the, the draft and, and all of that. So, um, but this week we're talking about the coaching staff. So, uh, but before we do that, let's talk about a little bit about the, um, the Super Bowl, since we now know what two teams are playing and all that. And um, so, what do you think, Bill? Where where are we going with the where's the Super Bowl headed this year? Well, I, I was wondering if you saw any surprises at all in the uh the NFC championship game or the AFC championship game. Um, I thought that the Kansas City and the Bills game would have been a little closer. Uh, but Kansas City came to play and I think the Bills just didn't. And uh Kansas City was ready to roll and and they made it to to the game. Uh, I thought that the, the Tampa Bay Green Bay game was really interesting. Um, I thought that Green Bay was going to come out and just kind of take that game. And uh, it ended up completely the opposite way of, of the direction I thought it would go. So it's Tampa Bay and Kansas City. What do you think? Yeah, I was, surpri- I was surprised by the NFC um, game. It, I, I Honestly, I don't think Tampa is a Super Bowl quality team compared to what we've seen from other years and that kind of stuff. I mean, their defense is good. It's not great. Their offense is good, but it's not great. They just played a really good team game in that. And even though Tom Brady played terribly, uh, Green Bay made no effort to take advantage of of Tom Brady's poor play. So, um, yeah, it was just some weird coaching decisions and the – awful defense by you know kevin king you know at the cornerback position and it just all kind of fell apart for green bay and they couldn't battle their way back into it but honestly that's not a game they should have lost are you excited about uh kansas city back in there dana you know i i here's the thing that i decided before this game i the bills have been my second favorite team for as long as i can remember i I'm old enough to remember those great nineties teams out of Buffalo. And so I, I love that team. Um, And so I've always had a soft spot for them. I've always wanted them to do well. And yet I live in Kansas city and I have so many friends who are crazy chiefs fans. And, and, and most of them are smart enough that you only get windows like this every once in a while. You only get teams like the Kansas city chiefs have right now, every once in a while. So I was going to be real happy to be honest with you, either way that went. But I, too, was so surprised at the way that that game showed up. The Bills looked like they had – the lights were just too bright for them. That This this was a game where, honest to God, you, you never felt like they got into a good rhythm. They never looked like they were playing complete Bills football, which we have seen them play. 
So we know that they can do it. Um, and so I was a little surprised at the way that game turned out from the Bills side of it. I think with that experience under their belt, maybe next year, it wouldn't be such bright light syndrome at this time. But now the NFC championship game shocked the crap out of me. I'm not going to lie. Like I couldn't believe what I was seeing from both of those quarterbacks. I was really surprised at the constant turnovers from Brady, but you could tell as the game went on, his arm was tired. He just wasn't throwing the way that he normally was at the beginning of the game. But I felt a little different about that Tampa Bay defense. I thought they looked fantastic. And the game plan for Aaron Rodgers was perfect. And so I'm not sure um, who deserves credit for the win or the loss. I don't think, I think that probably more of the blame lies with Green Bay. Think, I don't know if they thought they'd just come in and roll over them, which would have been silly having Tampa Bay having beaten them so badly in the regular season. But at the same time, I was, I was pretty impressed with that Tampa Bay defense. And, and I think that that is probably the only area of concern the Kansas City Chiefs should have about Tampa Bay. I think, I think the offensive side of the ball for Tampa Bay is something that that Chiefs defense can handle. So. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I agree on all your points. I mean, that's really good analysis. I do think that the Bills are, are well-equipped to be uh, competitive uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have any doubt that they're going to be back into the playoffs next year and uh, try to redeem that loss. Um, yeah, you know, there was a little uh, thing going on in Twitter uh, after the game uh, where, you know, Brady was getting, you know, due praise. He's he's going for his seventh ring out of 10 appearances mm-hmm. in the Super Bowl. I mean, that's crazy, right? Yeah. Um, he's got to be doing something right. But in this game, he had those turnovers. If it wasn't for Green Bay's inability to, to get the ball into the end zone and, and score, uh, that game w- would have probably turned out differently, I think. And mm-hmm. um, and so I think the defense really kind of won that game for him, bailed him mm-hmm. out. Um, but it'll be a good matchup. I think, you know, Kansas City is just going to be unstoppable. I, I'm not sure that Tampa Bay has what it takes to stop all that motion and the speed and the, all the weapons that um, Mahomes has and um, and their defense is, is um, just as good, if not better, than Green Bay's, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's going to be a tough matchup for, for Tom. But they're at home, quote-unquote, at their own stadium, and we'll see what happens. I would game. say <clears throat> I think this game opened as a, a three-and-a-half-point favorites for uh the chiefs and i was telling people i'm like if you're a betting person get on that because you're only laying three and a half by the by game time you're going to be laying six and at least six and a half and even if you wait and you have to lay six points i would probably take the chiefs i just uh we had there was a stretch back in in the in the late 90s where super bowls just weren't competitive and it was just Blowout after blowout after blowout. And most of those were, were San Francisco wins or Dallas wins. Um, the Bills lost four straight in blowout fashion. Um, in the middle of that, which those, that's that's kind of where I was, I'm thinking. And this just has that feel of that we're going to have another one of those games because it just does not feel like these are competitive teams. Like Kansas City just feels so much better. Well, so Kansas much City better. matched up with them November 29th and took a 17 to nothing lead early. And then, uh, you know, it's back and forth after that, 27-24 Chiefs uh, in the end there. But, um, yeah, they just have a lot of firepower. <laughs> There's just no, that, no question. But that is the one thing that Kansas City does. And, you know, I've, fought, I've covered this team all season. It's the one thing that they have done is they let teams hang around. 
And, and it's not that they aren't a much better team. They are, they're better. I mean, much better than most of their, their um, competition, but for some reason they let them hang around in these games when they shouldn't. Kansas city hadn't won a game by more than eight points since the beginning of November. And that to me just didn't make sense with the amount of talent that was on this team. And so if for some reason Kansas city should do that again, I think that's the one space where Tom Brady could take that advantage is staying in this game and then going for a kill at the end. So Kansas city cannot let that happen in this one. Look at that. I, I, would, I wouldn't, it, for me, yeah, if, if, um, if, if Tampa gets up early and can, can use that running game and keep Tom Brady from getting, getting killed and from throwing the ball a lot, because you saw what happened in this game when he's asked to throw the ball a ton, his arm got tired and he looked genuinely like an old guy trying to play quarterback uh, in the second half. And if they're asking him to throw them back into the game because Kansas city jumps out early, it's going to end yeah. poorly. Uh, for them, if they can get a lead and can can use that running game and have Tom Brady, you know, still relatively fresh, you know, in, in that two minute drill at the end of the game, is there anybody better? Is there anybody better in NFL history at you know two minutes left in in, in a game, especially a playoff game? I don't know. Uh, and so I would that would be the that would be the one the one way in which I see this work, but it it the game flow has to happen in a way that doesn't have Brady throwing the ball a lot early in the game because he'll tire out and he won't be able to be vintage Tom Brady at the end. All right. So let's move the discussion forward. Uh, just briefly wanted to uh, let folks know that Chad Wheeler was arrested this last weekend on God. domestic violence um, allegations, suspicion of uh, domestic violence. He did post bail, so he's out of jail. Uh, but I just thought I'd mention that uh, Chad Wheeler is a is an unrestricted free agent um, with the team this year. So after something like that, seems doubtful that he would be back. But you, you never know in these things until all the facts come out. And we should probably let that happen. So um, let's talk about before we get into the coaches stuff. And this might uh, lead us into to some of that. And we're going to talk about the the uh, offensive coordinator search as part of that discussion first. Um, I want to talk about what DK Metcalf. Uh, said in a interview with um, Brandon Marshall, Marshall. Mm -hmm. and he said team started to figure us out, but but he forgot to add, and Brian Schottenheimer forgot to adjust. <laughs> you know, uh, he kind of left that out of things. So everyone's kind of pinning that little comment back onto Pete as far as like, well, he's kind of throwing Pete under the bus because he's saying that you know we. Uh, we were going to throw over the top and we started running more and that's when teams got, you know, got onto us and we, you know, he just, he didn't talk about the lack of adjustments and some of the other issues that the team has regarding how the offense was operating and so forth and trying to counteract the cover two schemes that we were facing and so forth uh, with like motion and slants and tempo and running the ball, all that kind of stuff really didn't kind of come into play with Brian as he went into the second half of the season. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the comments that have been made in the offseason so far from Pete, what he's looking for, why Brian was let go, and and what they're looking for now in an offensive coordinator that will help guide the direction to bridge between what Pete Carroll needs and wants for the team's success, as well as what Russell Wilson needs to have in order to be uh, to maximize his success. Dana? 
Um, you know, those those comments by DK, I, I didn't get the impression that everyone else did. I think everyone's just ready to jump on feet and that's fine if that's what you want to do. But, you know, I, I think that people just automatically assume, but I, DK doesn't seem like the type of guy who's going to throw some people under the bus. You know, he's, I don't yeah, know. I, I just don't get that impression. That I didn't either until I started reading it on Twitter. I'm like, wow, that's just not how I read that at all. Um, I think that the point was made multiple times throughout the year. And then again, a lot this off season. And that is what exactly what you said of the no adjustments. And Pete mentioned it in press conference after press conference, after game, after game, where he kept coming back and saying, you know, we just didn't adjust at halftime. We just didn't adjust quick enough. We don't. And then Schottenheimer said it himself. And I thought, dude, you're digging your own hole because that is his job. Now, the Pete haters out there, because there are a bunch of them, they are like, well, no, that's, you know, Pete needs to do this. Pete needs to do that. No, that was Schottenheimer's job. And I truly believe that that is why he got fired. But I think the way he and Seattle left it was a respectable way to say, listen, we like this guy. We support this guy. He's just not our guy. And so when people were like, oh, they mutually parted ways, Schottenheimer got mad and left, like all this ridiculous spin that God love, Seahawks yeah. Twitter loves to do. But so when I saw that, I thought, you know what? Pete is truly trying to go in a new direction. And I know there's a lot of people out there who think he's old. He can't, you know, come up with new ideas, all these other things that we keep hearing him saying. But this year of all years proved that that was not the case. The whole let Russ cook and the way that they ran their offense at the beginning of the year shocked everyone, obviously, because they couldn't keep up with it. And then exactly like DK said, people figured it out. And so then they didn't adjust to bring new. And I think that's now what they're looking for. In my opinion, when Pete says things like he wants to run more and, and, you know, we have discussed this where it doesn't mean he wants to go back and run the ball 60, 70% of the time. That's not what he meant. He means move it, use it more effectively, um, use the run the way that it should be used. And there are people out there who think running back shouldn't even be on a team. Yeah, They're ridiculous. I cannot handle that. It drives me crazy. But it's like because you have to use the run game properly, especially as your quarterback starts to get older. And so anyway, I think what he what they're looking for. There's a couple of different ways when you look at this offensive coordinator. Everyone wants a new shiny toy. That's these people who are talking about, let's trade Russell Wilson for Deshaun Watson. That's because you want a younger, newer, shinier toy. No, that's not, you know, the most logical thing for a team. Um, And so I get, I've gotten in a couple of really big fights about that. But what I do think they're looking for is new ideas. It doesn't have to come from the youngest guy in the league. It doesn't have to necessarily come from the most, you know, the guy with the most years in the league either. They're just looking for something. And I think this is what Russell alluded to in his end of season press conference. They are looking for someone to give them a boost, to give them a different idea, to use their skill set differently. We all know Russell can throw the ball 50 yards down the field. We know this. But why do that every single time, like he was? Let's look for different ways to use it. So I think that's that's what they're looking for in an offensive coordinator. And I think that's why we've seen them cast such a big net. 11 different people they've contacted, you know, about this job. And and some decided to say some they've interviewed, some they haven't. Some are really young. I think the youngest guy is like 36 or 38. And then they have some guys that are in their later 40s and older. And so I think that they're just trying to get a feel for what's out there and what's available and what ideas people can bring to them. Well, and there's a, there's a couple of things that I want to add to that. One is, um, you know, when Pete said in his, his, his thing that everyone was jumping on when they're saying, oh, he wants to go back to running the ball 70% of the time. 
Um, his statement was that we need to run the ball more effectively. And then he fi- followed that up after saying more effectively like three times. Then he finally said, and we need to run it more. Um, but he's more, he's more interested in running it more effectively. And he specifically gave context and said, we have to be able to dictate to exactly. defenses what they're what they can do. We have to get them out of those cover two and cover four zones so that way Russ can do what Russ does. And he specifically that that statement right there, we have to be able to make adjustments and we didn't do it. And here was an adjustment that I know would have worked, but we didn't do. Yeah. And that's and that's the comment that's actually overlooked by almost everybody. Yes. Really. And they've so taken what, that interpretation and skewed it into a situation now where it's just out of control, really. Yeah. And, it, and I think, you know, everyone's going to be okay. I mean, we're going to go into the season. We're, hopefully, we're going to improve the running back room a little bit. I don't know exactly what's going to happen with Chris Carson. Um, and then uh, Pete mentioned uh, upgrading the offensive line a little bit. We, we all know that the offensive center and offensive guard positions are unrestricted at this point. Mm-hmm. So uh, we don't know if we're going to bring Posick back. It seems unlikely we bring a potty back at this point, given the injury situation. But you never know. He might come back on a veteran minimum deal. This kind of Well, Pete uh, specifically said that we have to upgrade at left guard. Exactly. So he, call, he called out, without using his name, he called out Lou Potty and said, we have to upgrade that position. To me, the potty's stuff. They're going to go get someone, whether it be a, a free agent or a draft pick. I have a feeling he's going to retire. I, I don't know why I get that gut feeling. I just feel like he saw this year and is like, you know what? I'm going to go out while I still, you know, you know, I don't want to go to a, yet another team. You know what I mean? I just, I don't know. I get that feeling. But anyway, sorry. sorry no, I'm with yeah, you. Well, I I think the point is, I think Pete wants to be more efficient. Um, they want to be able to convert third down at a higher percentage this year. I think uh, they were in the low 40s. He wants to be at least 45%, if not 47 or 48. I think the, uh, just to give you some context, I think the Kansas City Chiefs are at 49% conversion rate on third down, right? Tops in the mm-hmm. league. Um, they want to be able to, um, to to increase that tempo. They want to um, have running backs that are, that are more effective. I don't know if Chris Carson's the answer, to be completely honest when you suit up 12 games, you're missing four games. When you have a backup and Carlos Hyde missed seven or eight games, those guys are unavailable. One of the biggest traits that you can have in the NFL is just being available. And, uh, and that's a big deal to Pete. And so I'm not exactly sure if, you know, Chris Carson's looking for a $7 million a year number, if that's attainable for him from any team, given that injury history. And so I think that, you know, Seattle might be, letting him go out there, seeing what numbers he can get, and then having him come back maybe on a one-year $5.5 million deal type of thing um, to give him an opportunity to, to play 16 games and see. Because he is the type of running back, the style that Pete likes to have, a violent runner, guy that initiates contact, breaking tackles, all that kind of stuff are excellent positive traits that, um, that Carson has. But it'd be interesting to see. There's a few uh, running backs in the draft I, I really like, and there's some free agents out there as well that can help. So, um, all right, let's go into uh, lead that into that offensive coordinator conversation uh, for, for a little bit. And let's just talk about where we're at in that search. As you mentioned, Dana, um, they've, they've talked to or been linked to 11 uh, different um, coaches at this point that they've either talked to or been um, rumored 
to want to talk to, uh, all the way from Doug Peterson and Anthony Lynn, uh, who accepted the Lions head coaching job, and Adam Gase, um, Mike, Mike Kapka, uh, the Kansas City uh, quarterback coach. I think he's expected to stay there. Uh, Shane Steichen, the ex-OC um, for the Chargers. Uh, he's now the new uh, Eagles head coach. Um, Pep Hamilton, Kirby Wilson, Joe Lombardi. He just accepted the, a new position. Um, Ken Dorsey, Shane Waldron are two names that have been recently added. I'm more intrigued by uh, Shane Waldron um, than, than most of the other ones, to be completely honest. I think he'd be an excellent fit for what they're trying to do. So I wanted to kind of throw this out there to you guys. How do you see the search so far? Are you concerned that uh, quite a few of the names that they've been linked to have already accepted positions with other organizations? And do you think Seattle's doing it the right way? Or uh, do you think that somebody should have been in place by now? Either one. Go ahead. People kind of, I think our listeners know more of where I'm running, going to run with this. So why don't you go ahead and start us off, Dana? Okay, sure. Yeah, you know, I, 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 Jake Keeps put out an interesting article or they interviewed Jake Keeps um, and he said really that there were five left that they were really interested in. And, and a lot of people took that as Russell Wilson is saying, lean this direction. You know, they were like all about, you know, because Jake and Russell are, you know, are in business together. So it's like, you know, is it, I don't think that was it. I think it was just a logical, you know, look through of, of who is really out there. I have been pounding the drum for Pep Hamilton for a while. And I know that that's not the most popular name out there, but what intrigued me about Pep Hamilton is a, what he did with Justin Herbert. Now I, I get Russell Wilson doesn't need to be taught how to be a quarterback. We, we know that's not it, but it can sometimes be really good have someone come in and just tell, you know, help people look at things differently. And I think Pep Hamilton could probably do that for Russell. But more importantly to me is that Pep Hamilton, at, I think he's 46 years old, has already been a head coach. He was a head coach in the XFL, which, you know, that's not the NFL. And I'm not saying, you know, that 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 makes him any more qualified than maybe a quarterback's coach from Buffalo. But but what I'm saying is that that to be that you have to be a leader. And I think that is something Seattle is looking for is someone who can lead this position. And they have said they want someone who can push back against Pete. And so once you've been a head coach, I think you can just see things. So I, a little differently. So I I've been kind of beating the drum for Pep for a while. I, I don't know that he'll end up in Seattle, but I would, I would be thrilled with that. Um, Ken Dorsey is a name. I think that is um, a lot of people have really talked about um, I also know that um, Nathaniel Hackett out of Green Bay, I, you know, I, I'm not super excited about those names. Um, but then Shane Waldron is the one, like you said, that, that a lot of people are getting really excited about. Obviously, he's a passing game coordinator for the Rams. Um, my thing is, though, has the passing game been so fantastic for the Rams that we have to, you know, hold him so high? I, I think that some of these coaches you have to look at what you have to work with. I, oh, oh, amen. That's a whole podcast in and of itself. But I think that too, one thing that we have to keep in mind, there is still that Sean McVay effect. His, his coaching staff, his general, they're getting poached left and right. Like they understand that he is kind of the new bright mind and people want that. But at the same time, the new shiny toy doesn't always mean it's the best. And so you have to really look at fit 
And I think that's why, like they brought in Adam Gase. That wasn't a serious thing. I think that was, you know, just because they were talking to everyone. Same with the running backs coach. I think that they um, brought in like Doug Peterson and Anthony Lynn and Adam Gase mm-hmm. because of the relationships that Pete had with so those too. guys and to get information about other coaches like Anthony Lynn probably talked about Pep Hamilton and, and uh, Shane Steichen, uh, Steichen at the, mm-hmm. at the time it was available um, just to kind of get some background information on those guys as well. And that makes so much sense. Um, and, and then, you know, I think there are a lot of people who would get really worked up if Peterson showed up. I, I, once again, I don't, I, he keeps saying he's going to take the year off. I think he should take a year off. So I know that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I get wanting the younger guys with new ideas, but I still think that you have to have, because of the age of our quarterback, the, the way our team is set up, you're not looking for someone to completely mold a brand new quarterback. You, you have to have someone who has kind of a little more depth. And so that's why I just really lean toward Pep Hamilton. I, I know I'm not alone in that, but I also know that he's not a lot of people's first choice. So. No, um, and actually, you're not going to get a lot of pushback on Pep Hamilton for me. I, I agree. He's not everyone's first choice. He's he's a um, you know he's a running guy, and and he's um, people are going they want the they want the passing game coordinator. That's why Walden is um, is the name. He, he is kind of a West Coast offense guy too, yeah. Yeah. and with kind of a power run kind of background to him. Yeah, <clears throat> and so I, I I I like Hamilton. The fact that they talked to him, I thought was great, and I'd I'd love to see him come in. Uh, get an opportunity to call plays and that kind of stuff. Um, the the direction that I wanted the team to go got shut down early. Um, and that was uh, the San Francisco running game coordinator. Um, I think his last name was McDaniels. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a guy that they wanted Mike to talk McDaniel. to. He was, yeah. And pretty much as soon as the name came out as someone was interested, um, San Francisco promoted him to offensive coordinator, which took him off the market um, because the things that Shanahan's offense does in the running game and in the passing game and all the movement and everything. Um, Shanahan is, is a very good offensive mind. He runs a very competent, very good um, scheme that makes it really hard on defenses. And he's stuck with, you know, genuinely kind of a bad quarterback situation, but um it, that would have been a great fit in Seattle. All the things that he does, um, you know, the stretch zone plays and the motion off of that and all those things, he would have been a fantastic fit. But San Francisco goes, you don't get to, you don't get to do that. No, you don't get to take him from us. And so they promoted him um, so that he wouldn't, he couldn't leave. Um, Seattle couldn't pursue him. So Keith, uh, are that, you concerned at all uh, in the direction that Seattle's been going in the last couple of weeks? Or are no, you okay I'm with not. them taking the time? <clears throat> because one of the things that they've been doing is they they interviewed Anthony Lynn and Adam Gase and, and those but were those serious interviews? Were any of those guys ever going to be hired by Seattle? Were they Seattle ever going to offer any of those guys a job? And I don't believe the answer is yes, because uh Pete Carroll doesn't want to bring in Doug Peterson for a year and then have him leave to become a head coach somewhere mm-hmm. uh, and have to redo this again next year. He wants a guy that's going to be here as long as he is, right? He's probably got three more years left of Pete. Um, he wants a guy that's going to be here as long as as he is. So that way there's that continuity. There's um, They're not changing schemes. They're not relearning all that kind of stuff. And so um, he's not going to bring in those guys. So we've talked let to those me, guys, picked their brain a little bit. Hey, what would you do with Russ? What do you think we need? All those kind of stuff. So he picked their brain 
But those weren't serious interviews. The serious interviews are the ones that are coming up now, now that teams that are in the playoffs are losing and their coaching staff's becoming available to interview. And that's Walden and that's Lombardi and that's Dorsey. And those are the guys that are actually serious candidates for this job. And the fact that most of them are passing game coordinators or quarterback coaches tells me that Pete is still looking for someone to breathe life into the passing game and make it so that it doesn't die like it did in the second half of this last season. Um, knowing that he's got point. that he's got Solari and the running game, they need to merge those two ideas together a little better. Um, well, let me ask you this about merging. The uh, the last time uh, we changed coordinators, when Brian Schottenheimer was hired, Daryl Bevel was let go. They retained about 70% of the Daryl Bevel playbook and then Brian Schottenheimer added to that. Are we looking at a similar situation with this go-round or is this going to be completely new? Uh, it's going to be similar. Uh, it's going to be similar because we're looking at, we're not talking about switching from... Because um, Daryl you know, Bevel kind of ran a West Coast deal and, yeah. and Schottenheimer was more of an Eric Coriel kind of a guy. Yeah, How and do those two marry up? Well, they married up because they stuck with the zone blocking. Um, they stuck with the inside zone scheme. Um, they changed a little bit of what they wanted from their um, their their guards, specifically in terms of the running game and that kind of stuff. But they 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 kept a lot of that stuff. They did a lot a lot of the same route concepts. They reduced the number of option routes that they ran and had more um, prescribed routes for the wide receivers to simplify things. But a lot of what they did was still fundamentally the same. Um, and so, and what they really, when, when they, when Pete was talking about that, what he really wanted was to keep the terminology the same and not inject an entirely new foreign language to all the players and say, here, you know, go learn Greek so that way we can, um, run the same play. Um, and so they kept the terminology the same and they made Schottenheimer adjust to it. But as far as, I mean, there's a lot of, there was a lot of similarity anyway. Um, and anything that you're going to do can, you know, yeah, there's going to be a lot of the similarity, but you, it's what you add and it's okay. You keep the terminology the same for everyone, but then what do you, what changes do you make? What do you tweak? Do they go back to running more option routes um, as wide receivers? Do they put Wilson in motion more? The motion plays for Wilson, you know, the half rollouts, the, the bootlegs, those are in the playbook, but how often do you call them? Right. For, for reasons I haven't been able to figure out Schottenheimer did not like to call those plays. And yet when he did, it helped Russ out a lot because it gave him more time, gave him more space, allowed him to, you know, set his feet and and get the ball down. So field. movement, uh, misdirection, move the pocket around, quick tempo, all those things that seem to Wal be missing. That Walden does really well, and or that the the Rams do really well, and so therefore Walden would Absolutely. bring in, and Absolutely. that is why people are excited about that because he brings in. Uh, he would bring in an offense or a background that uses um, motion and shifts way more than Seattle ever did. Um, that play action. Play action more than Seattle did. That used um, moving pockets and half rollouts and bootlegs and, and, and that stuff more than Seattle did. These are things that Seattle should have been doing, but didn't. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Russell Wilson would thrive in that system. He would. And every time they do that kind of stuff and they go to it, he does well. And what would happen with Shoddy is he would go, oh, that's working. Let's do something else. <laughs> um, and that's or, my, 
on the opposite end, let's do it over and over, over and, and over and over and over and never change anything. <laughs> yes, that's that's the other thing that he would do um, is he just grind it into the earth. But he it, it was very frustrating having an offense coordinated by by Schottenheimer and, and having someone with new ideas, new thoughts. Just you can take the same exact playbook and just run different plays out of it and have way more success in Seattle. Um, because they have the plays in the playbook. He just never called them. And that was the problem. I think one thing we have to keep in mind too, when we're discussing these schemes and this sort of thing is we also, you also have to have an offensive coordinator come in and realize he's not going to make Russell Wilson any taller. He's not going to make, you know, you know, complete changes to who he is. So he has to be able to work within Russell Wilson's skill set, and, you know, which really felt, it really felt two dimensional last year, even in the beginning of this, even in the beginning of the year when they were doing so well and having all these fantastic, you know, plays and everything, it still didn't feel like a well-rounded offense. The offenses that you see out of Kansas city, you know, and some of those other teams, it just didn't feel like you almost could, even though it wasn't run, run pass, which everyone hated and everyone, you know, complained about, it still didn't feel like there was a lot of variety. It still didn't feel like there was a lot of depth to it. And I think that even with every quarterback has his limitations, Russell Wilson has limitations too, but that doesn't mean that you only stick with a couple, a handful of things. You have to have a well-rounded offense. And these players are smart enough and fast enough and talented enough to yeah. deal with those. I really variety. think that that came out in the second half of the year last mm-hmm. year with Brian Schottenheimer. I think that you saw his ceiling exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, in the fact that they were able to, to generate a, a really nice uh, functioning offense in the first half, but unable to do anything else in the second half to, uh, to change when teams were changing against us on defense. And um, I, that's why he was let go, I mean, because he couldn't make those adjustments. I think that he would have been around, and he would have been around, I think, if he would have committed to making those adjustments in the future, and they, they went through that process and that conversation, which led to him being let go. Um, which is, which is interesting. What, one more thing too, there was a lot of people who were like, you know, Shoddy's a good guy. No one's saying Shoddy's not a good guy. You know, Shoddy's a good guy and Pete should have helped him more. Well, and we'll get to Ken Norton because I know we're going to talk about this, but I think Pete was trying to fix the defense so badly that he trusted Schottenheimer with the offense and it backfired. I think another thing, uh, and I made this comment a couple of weeks ago on on a show is that I honestly believe that both Pete and Brian we're waiting for Russell Wilson to come out of a little slump, a little funk. Oh, sure. And they waited uh, one week and then they waited the next week and they waited the third week and he just kept going mm-hmm. and they never really got him out of that. And Russell never pulled himself out of that. And mm-hmm. I think that contributed as well because we did see that Russell Wilson was struggling on his mm-hmm. own terms, not just within the offense that was, that was set out for him. So Anywho, one name we didn't mention on the OC search was the in-house candidate, um, Dave Canales, uh, passing game coordinator in 2020. Um, he's been with Pete, though, since his last season at USC. Um, he's worked with Bevel, with Brian, with Wilson. He's been around Pete. He knows the, the culture and, and the system uh, really well, knows uh, you know the West Coast system and the, and the Air Coriel. What is the team doing to, to kind of promote within elevate coaches like that, or is he even a candidate um, 
in, in the truest sense of the word? Are they really looking outside the organization? Well, they appear to be mostly looking outside the organization. And that's um, not to say anything about Canales. I mean, he was the quarterback coach a couple of years ago, and then they, they promoted him to um, this passing game coordinator and, and gave him some of those, those coordinator responsibilities just to, you know, keep him here and, and, you know, keep him focused and organized and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately what they need now is they need, they do need someone to come in with some fresh eyes. And he's a guy who's been here from the beginning. He's not a guy with fresh eyes. He's one of the guys that's been, you know, got, had his input taken and it's led them to needing new information right um and that's not to say anything bad about him i mean he obviously is loved by pete he's there he's um but they do need some outside um eyeballs to look at this and you kind of ran into the same thing with on the the defensive side where they they were promoting from within right when you had chris richard and and uh they, they just kept promoting guys they already knew and eventually things got a little stale and okay, Ken Norton is, is part of the Pete Carroll coaching tree, but he'd spent three years in Oakland um, working with Jack Del Rio, who ran a completely different defense, like not even similar. Um, and so he came back with an expanded knowledge. Um, and, you know, that was something that Pete wanted. He, yes, he wanted Ken because of who he is as a person and as a motivator and <clears throat> the respect that guys like, you know, Bobby Wagner and KJ Wright have for him. But he also wanted someone who could bring in and, and bring some new ideas and some new energy um, to the coordinator's room. Um, and that's what he found, you know, that's one of the things he really liked about Ken Norton. And I think we did finally see some of that come through in the second half of the year where there was some really creative uh, blitzing schemes that you would have seen from Jack Del Rio and, and that defense. Um, there was some of that. Some of those plays uh, showed up. With the, with the weird blitzes and stuff that Seattle was running that were very much you never would have seen from Dan Quinn or Gus Bradley or Chris Richard. So uh, I think you you finally saw, um, you know, that work itself out and and be a big positive for Seattle. Um, and I think he, Pete Carroll is looking for that on the offense too. Well, let's stick with Ken for, for a minute now that we're started on that Can I say one thing about yeah, the sure. OC before we smooch on? I, oh, do, sure. I just want to add, if Seattle ends up promoting with, from within for their offensive coordinator, that would be very discouraging t- to me as a fan, because I think that then that goes back in the face of we are trying to keep up with the rest of the league and promoting with from within, especially someone who's been there that long. It, it, it just it doesn't instill a lot of faith in me as a fan. So I, I really hope that they do end up hiring and nothing against him. I'm sure he's a wonderful man. I just. I, I think that what Keith said is so important. They I just do too. That new, new ideas. I do too. I do too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's really important for him to eventually leave, go into another situation and then maybe come back someday mm-hmm. if that's important to him or if that's the opportunity. Um, Ken Norton. So let's talk about the defense in the first half of the year, the historically bad uh, pass defense. Um, they were, they were pretty good against the run, but teams decided they didn't need to run against Seattle when they could throw it all over the field on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we ended up winning five games. So we just kind of let it kind of run its course a little bit. I think during that time, um, they were still trying to in- integrate, um, Jamal Adams into the defense. I think there were some miscommunications going on between Diggs and Adams, the back end and the front end and what the cornerbacks were going to be responsible for. And the, and the, you know, all that stuff. 
it just wasn't gelling for whatever reason. Adams got hurt. Neil came came in. The defense got a little better during that time, just from a bread and butter um, base defense aspect. Um, and then when Jamal came back, they ended up having a meeting. Everyone kind of got on the same page, and boom, the defense completely turned around. I think they were dead last in defense in the first eight games, and literally number one in the last eight games, and ended up at 15th overall, <laughs> which is kind of mm-hmm. crazy. Um, so I just kind of wanted to bounce that off, off you, Dana. What did mm-hmm. you see? What do you think were the symptoms and the solutions and how did they turn it around? And why is Ken Norton still here when we all he, thought he probably was going to be out the door? I was screaming for his head. Not going to lie. You know, I'm a defense lover. It's my favorite part of football. I was screaming for his head. And then you have to kind of take a minute and, and, and take a pause and look at what was going on with the Seattle defense. And I'm very glad that they did go five and zero because I think that saved them from maybe making personnel changes that they didn't, that they they ended up not doing it because they were winning still. And I think that ended up being a good thing. So we have to remember that right away, our, this defense was injured, injured, injured. We lost Marquise Blair. You lost um, Bruce Irvin, both for the season. Both were going to be vital. Whether you like Bruce Irvin or not, he was going to be a piece of this puzzle, right? KJ Wright gets moved. Dunbar's playing with a broken knee, whatever the heck that was, you know, he had all that kinds of injuries. Yeah. And then, um, and so he was horrible in his position, but of course he was, he had a broken knee, you know what I mean? And so, and then Adams gets hurt. So there was just this domino effect. And I feel like because everyone was getting moved around and there were new pieces and, you know, all the time there was, they couldn't get settled, but they didn't need to because the offense was bailing them out and they were still winning those games. They did have a meeting. I do wonder how much Pete Carroll injected himself into that defense in the second half. I wonder, you know, we're giving Norton all the credit, but I wonder if Pete was in there a little more than he normally would have been, you know, digging a little bit. But I think more than anything, two things really, truly happened. Jamal Adams, they stopped blitzing him every single play, which was a huge help. I think they let him kind of sit a little bit more. But more importantly, the addition of Dunlap changed this team. And I think that that was without question, the biggest turning point, you know, John Snyder, and I know we're going to talk about him a little bit. He gets all this credit for bringing Adams in, but I think he almost deserves more credit for bringing Dunlap in. He saw that talent and how well he was going to fit. And I think that that was just the injection and the spark that this defense needed. And so I it allowed think that everybody on that defensive line to play their own, position. their own positions. <laughs> and he made other people better, mm-hmm. you know, and took on some, some double teams and, and all the focus of offenses and uh, allowed Jaron Reed to excel again, mm-hmm. as we saw with uh, Frank Clark here. Right. And, and even, I mean, even Collier played better. Everyone was starting to play better. And I think it's because, you know, one of the beautiful things about the Legion of Boom and that whole defense and the, you know, best defense in history, whatever it was, is that every single player trusted every other player in that defense to do their job. And I don't think there was any trust. We saw Bobby yeah. trying to make sure he's covering everybody's butt. All these other things are going on. I'll mention so two that, more players that added, mm-hmm. added into the mix, too, was uh, DJ Reed Huge. and uh, Brooks. 
at, at the at the strong at the weak side. Linebacker. linebacker. Yeah, having him come back from from that injury. I mean, he if he had been able to just step in when Bruce Irvin got hurt, um, and we would have seen. I think we wouldn't have seen quite such an awful defense there. But when Bruce Irvin got hurt, and then Brooks got hurt, like the next it felt like the next play. Um, it wasn't, but it felt like it. And then there was they didn't have like they're, they're they were really lacking. Um, the just the physical speed and presence uh there and it was when brooks came back um you know at, at roughly the same time that adams came back at roughly the same time that um Shaquille griffin came back and it was like this massive infusion of talent and then dunlap was just like you know the cherry on top of the sunday um that it, I mean, that's just a lot of talent to add to a defense at once because all these people were weren't playing um, three of them were hurt and one of them wasn't even on the roster and now suddenly they are and I was like wow um, but the part that you guys are saying about about the trust and doing your job uh, is the bigger part because what you saw early on the first couple of games when the team had um, its talent it had uh, Blair and um, Irvin and it had you know the starting four in the back including a healthy um uh, Dunbar and, and Griffin and stuff. The defense was terrible. But why was the defense terrible? Because go watch the, go rewatch those games and go specifically watch the L22 and watch uh, Quill Griffin. He was not doing his job. What was he doing? He was trying to play both cornerback and free safety. Um, he was bailing out on his responsibilities because they were throwing over the middle. And so he's, I'm going to go over there. And so he'd bail out on that responsibility and leave his guy wide open on the outside. And you saw that a lot by the people on the back end. There was just a lot of that going on, and it led to some of the worst uh, coverage you'll ever see. In addition to Dunbar's worst coverage, and that well, yeah, was I'm a talking double whammy. I'm talking before the before the even before his knee injury. Um, once his yeah, knee he was playing with a bad knee all year. True, but it got it did get worse, and I got that Buffalo the Buffalo game where he was playing on the opposite side. He was playing over on Quill's side. And he should not have been playing. That was literally the worst. That was the worst you'll ever see for cornerback play in the NFL. You, you will you won't find a better example of just being awful. And I, it's not necessarily just him. I mean, he couldn't run. He it, it, just watching him walk towards the huddle looked painful. Um, he shouldn't have been out there. The team should have pulled him way before they did. Um, but it was really really bad. And so getting healthy bodies whether it be Flowers when he came in um, and then he eventually got hurt and DJ Reed stepped up and then DJ Reed was just, I mean, that was like a revelation just to have him be, to play at such a high level for a guy that wasn't even. And I like, thought he was going to come in and play slot. No, they had him play outside corner at five, nine, 185 or whatever. They had to, he, he got, they, they pulled him off waivers to be a slot guy, but who else was they going to, who else was on the roster? Right. They were, they were down to, okay, so it's either going to be DJ Reed who we know can play and has this or Lyndon Stevens, who's has like 11 NFL snaps in his entire career. And okay, it's going to be Reed. And so they stuck him out there and you know what? It worked. They're like, all right, it worked. We can go with this, but they didn't have any, everybody was hurt. They didn't have any options. Crazy. So uh, we've talked about Pete. We've talked about Ken. Let's, Let's go to um, John Schneider just for a little bit and, and talk about 
the things that John was able to do, um, not only this year, but, but just a long time, they gave him an extension. Um, he, he was installed, uh, almost 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, January 19th, two, uh, 2010. Um, t- this will be the 12th year, 12th season with the team. Isn't that crazy? Time just goes by like, like crazy, but he's been responsible for, for the drafts, the free agency, the trades, the waiver wire, all that kind of stuff. And the players that have come through during this tenure, um, when you compare them to the first 30 years of the franchise and then the last, you know, 12, 13 years, Russell Wilson, Earl Thomas, uh, Richard Sherman, Bobby Wagner, Chancellor, Wright, Lockett, Bennett, Averill, Frank Clark, um, Baldwin, Metcalf, Metcalf, Jerron Reed, (laughs) Marshawn Lynch, Jimmy Graham, um, Dwayne Brown, that, that trade worked out really well. And Jamal Adams, you know, at the end and then Dunlap. I mean, (laughs) nobody can say that this GM hasn't done and brought in top end talent on this, on this team to give the team the best chance to win. And they have, they're this, the second winningest franchise in the last 10 years other than the New England Patriots. Um, and it's just, it's, it's amazing. So I wanted to ask you how you thought, you know, this last draft went, how you thought the trades turned out. If there's any buyer's remorse on, on a guy like Jamal Adams, where we know the cap number is going to be huge. We're in a cap kind of crunch uh, a little bit on the, on the team, the lack of draft capital this year when we know we need probably more than one player to be competitive at the level that Kansas city is at right now, how do we get there with the resources we have? And did he make the right moves this off season to, to put together the best team he could, Dana? Um, I am baffled on a regular basis for all the people who were calling for John Snyder's head. I, I don't understand it. They wanted him fired. They wanted him gone. And I, that's, I think when I really upset Seahawks Twitter and called them all spoiled. I just said, oh my God, you people are so spoiled. And then I got a lot of backlash for that. (laughs) And, um, but I stand by that um, because we have forgotten what it was like. Do people not remember Tim Ruskell? They they don't. They don't. (laughs) For that matter, Mike Holmgren, when he was the GM before he got that that title (laughs) removed from him. Yeah. I think that, I think that they don't, it, it's easy. You know, we, Seattle and I always say, you know, we're in the playoffs every year. That says something. No, we haven't won a Super Bowl. Okay. I get it. But talking about John Snyder, uh, we, there's, I, I do another podcast with a couple of girls from the UK and they, um, we talk about how John Snyder is a wizard. You're a wizard, John. We say that all the time because some of the <laughs> stuff he pulls off is just mind bending yeah. and it starts with Marshawn Lynch. And it ends with Jamal Adams. These are trades that he went out. And yes, Jamal Adams cost us first round pick. Yep, I'd do it again. I have no buyer's remorse on that in any Couple way. Couple first round form. picks. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm fine with that. You know, um, I think um, Brian um, from Hawkblocker, he said he's a blue chip player and those are worth a first round pick when you're drafting in the bottom of the first round. That's what it is. If this was the first pick of the draft, that'd be a different conversation, but it's not. In a, in a year of forget that. 19 and right. a lot of uncertainty. They aren't going to get a combine. They're not going to know these players. Yes, I completely agree. And I think yeah. that this was the perfect year to do it. Yeah, because at, at the time the trade was made, we were unsure if there was going to be college football. I mean, we knew there was going to be, they were going to start. 
we knew there. Well, we knew that there were they were going to they were going to start college football in the mm-hmm. SEC, and maybe you know the ACC, but we didn't know if anyone else was going to play. Um, and even if they did, the idea was like, are they going to be able to keep this going for more than a week or two, and then it's all going to get shut down? And a lot of folks were going to opt out. Yeah, to make, make it even more challenging. Right? And so we, they were looking at at going into an off season right now where you would be planning for a draft based on tape from two years or from more than a year ago. Um, you haven't seen these players, don't have any idea where they're at, Not probably not going to have a combine, not going to be allowed to do you know in-person visits because can't have people come into the facility. And, and they're like, you know what? The draft picks just aren't worth the same right now than they normally are. But you know what's, what's worth a ton is an all-pro uh, you know, player especially an all pro player who's really young that we can get and have control over for a few years. Yeah. We're not let's talking about that. a 33 year old here. You know, no. we're talking about a kid. Still let me, let me ask you, back. let me ask you this though. Okay. So let's take these two things into consideration. Scheme fit, cost and value and cap hit moving forward. So we all know Jamal Adams is on the last year of his rookie deal. Um, in the fifth year option, he's getting paid close to almost 10, about $9.5 million. Uh, it's a one-year deal. Um, they're going to have to step up and probably get close to 17 with him, mm-hmm. I think. 17 million over four years. So 70 million over four years with about 40 guaranteed. Um, in a year that we don't have a lot of cap space. Now we could generate some first-year cap space with a contract like that. Um, but moving forward, it's going to be pretty expensive and the lack of draft capital now, um, trading away the first and then, um, you know, only having four picks this year, uh, 59 is the first or 56 is the first, uh, pick in the second round for the uh, Seahawks. Um, would you guys consider trading Jamal Adams out there to see if you could recruit? Coop some of that draft capital this year and avoid some of the cap um, situation that would incur uh, because of that contract moving forward. So, for example, would you take a middle of the first round pick uh, plus a second this year and maybe or or a third uh, this year and maybe a third or fourth or fifth um, in in twenty two? Um, would you would you take that back? Of course, in that given the fact of where we're at in the draft this year would completely transform Seattle's draft um, this year and allow us to be able to, to do a lot of different things um, and possibly build a stronger core than just one player that we'd be paying. So what are, your, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I think you run into a, a situation where your roster becomes a Tim Ruskell roster, where you have a whole bunch of good players, but no difference makers and no great players. And you have to have that top end talent that changes games. As, and if you, as John says, tilts the field. Yes. And if you don't have the guys that can tilt the field, then what are you doing? Are you going to be able to do anything? And you might have a team that's going to win some regular season games, but you're never going to be a true contender. You've got to have guys that can tilt the field. Jamal, uh, Jamal Adams tilts the field. I wouldn't trade it. You got a guy that good, that young, that athletic, that talented. Keep him, pay him, play him. Make up the difference by not bringing in a Bruce Irvin or a um, Greg Olson and and 
making that be where you have to take the hit in order to make it work as far as, um, you know, the cap room and that kind of stuff. Um, but you got to have the stars. You got to have them. And as Bobby Wagner ages, you need someone to take the mantle because he's not going to be the best linebacker in the NFL forever. And so you've got to have someone else who can pick up that mantle and carry the defense the way Bobby Wagner has. And Jamal Adams is that kind of guy. You can say what you want about, okay, but he's a safety instead of a linebacker. Wouldn't you rather have that as a defensive end or a defensive tackle, whatever. How many players like that are there? Just period. How many are there? Let's talk about, let's talk about scheme fit. Let's talk about the way that, that the, Seahawks use him. Ken Norton aligns him the way that the other players need to adjust their games around him, et cetera. Is that a big issue in Seattle? Are we maximizing him? Are we minimizing him? Is he good enough in coverage? Do we care about any of that? Um, Dana, what do you think as far as the value that a guy like Jamal Adams brings to a defense versus how much he costs? Well, to answer your first question, no, I wouldn't trade him. Um, I don't, I don't think that for, for many of the reasons that, that Keith said, but um, also just because do you really trade an all pro player? I, I, it's just, it's illogical to me. And I think that John Snyder, as we were talking about him, when we started this, John Snyder is smart enough to have thought down the road, how, if we're going to keep him, how are we going to keep him? What does that look like? Where does that need to come from? And the four draft picks this year, I'm sorry, it won't stay four. I think even if they manage to get to six, that's fine. Because to be quite honest with you, the Seahawks are pretty hit and miss in these drafts, right? Like that drafting is not the strongest suit I think that Seattle has had over the years. They've had a lot of years where they just miss. And so trading for these great players, I think, is important. When you look at his value, I think that where you have to look beyond the the scheme on the field is his leadership. Like he said, he's going to be that leader. He seems to be really happy in Seattle and to have bought in. And as we know in Seattle, if you don't buy in, you don't stay. And so he seems to have bought in, which I think is important. But when you look at his value, I think that they will pay him. They'll keep him. They'll extend it. I think we're going to see a lot of contract extensions this year that push the problem down the road because they know that 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 cap number is going to rebound very quickly and get very big, very quickly. And they'll have lots of space for him. Um, You know, there's been some questions on who they could get rid of that would make up some of that room. And Jaron Reed's name comes up a lot because I think he's an $8 million cap hit next year, you know? And so we have, you know, there's room there. He's actually more than that. Is it? I couldn't Mm -hmm. even remember. I'm so sorry. I can't even remember. But, and so I look at this and I think to myself, you know, is this player, worth the money he's going to ask for. And there are very few players where you can almost always say yes to. And I believe because of where the safety market is, we can say yes to that with Jamal Adams. Are you at all concerned about the way that he plays that he could be injury prone um, in years moving forward, just based on the fact that he's so physical and so aggressive mm-hmm. um, in his playing style? Well, I, yes and no, because I, I, Okay, let me see if I can explain this properly. I used to worry about that with Russell Wilson too. And what we have seen Seattle do is adapt Russell Wilson's game so he's not throwing his body out there and getting hit as often. I mean, he's still getting sacked all the time, but he's not running and getting hit all the time. I can see a good defensive coordinator over time as he gets older adjusting the way he plays so he's not so physical, but he's 24. 
And yes, he's been injured. He had broken fingers. I don't know if you guys saw those pictures. It was really gross. But, you know, he had uh, these surgeries. But you get one full healthy season out of Jamal Adams, and he'll be worth every dime you've paid him. Mm -hmm. Any other part um, when you're looking into this is it, it just comes down to, oh, is he, he's not a good scheme fit or whatever. If he was such a terrible scheme fit, then why was the defense so damn good for the last, like, eight games? Right? He was well, better he, when he's on the field, was, without question. definitely it, one piece. But, yes, but if, if he's such a terrible scheme fit, then why was the defense so good with him being one of the centerpieces of the defensive scheme? He's a, he's a scheme fit in... Seattle because they designed the scheme around his talent set. Right. And I think, yeah. And I think when Dunlap came in, it took some of that pressure off of mm -hmm. Adams to be the end all be all on that side of the field. And so I think that the longer we have those two together, because remember Dunlap still has, I think one, at least one more year yeah. before his contract comes up, then, then we'll probably see that evolve even more. Dunlap's so, also so, got a fourteen million dollar yeah, cap hit so with no dead Dun money. Dunlap so has he, like a four point five million dollar bonus that is uh, paid on the fifth uh, day of the new season, which is March twentieth or whatever. And then, um, and then he's like he's got the fourteen thing. None of it's guaranteed. So you talked about restructuring, extending, and so forth. Mm -hmm. That has definitely got to happen this this offseason right now, mm -hmm. based on a hundred and seventy eight million dollar cap from over the cap. I think that might go up a little bit mm -hmm. with the league after negotiations, mm -hmm. but right now that's where it stands. And that gives this, the team currently $2.7 million in available cap space. They can't go into a season like that just with rookies, let alone uh, signing all the guys that they need to sign. I think they've got 47 guys under current contract and so forth. They need to fill out their roster, et cetera. So you've got Diggs at 5.5. That's unguaranteed Dunlap at 14.1. Adams is at 9.86. That's non-guaranteed as well. Um, Dwayne Brown at 13.55 million. Only two of that is guaranteed. We mentioned uh, Reed. I think he's at like 11. Four, is it 11 or? Four? I think it's 11. It might yeah, be 13 this year. Ridiculous. Um, and that's most of that is unguaranteed. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you can if you can uh, get Reed, he's got one year left. If you get him under uh, two more years uh convert some of that into bonus and spread that out a little bit his first year cap hit will go down same thing with Diggs. you can do that with dunlap uh if you resign adams all of those guys we can kind of fold back into uh the the cap about 20 or 25 million dollars just by restructuring five or six guys well and you it's have you also have russell wilson's contract which, including wilson or wagner in those discussions yeah any, any time if, if they need cap space and they haven't done it because they have been able to work around it but if they need cap space there's like 15 to 20 million dollars per year that they could go get from russell wilson not by taking money from him but just by giving him it now rather than after every game right taking it giving it to him as a signing bonus instead of game checks you can pull in a ton of extra cap space from a contract like that because it's not like wilson's going anywhere that's right? true but you, so would, who you would who cares not, if it's, it would be uh devastating though if he ended up having some sort of major injury it's true but i i think this is the year where they have to to take that bet and i think that just because and i do think the cap will get closer to like mid 180s i do think it probably end up there give a little I more agree. wiggle room in there 
Um, but, and from everything I've read, I've heard as high as like 192. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there is, that's some good stuff there, but at the same time, I think that this is the year where you, you hedge your bet on that. You know, you, you guarantee well, Dana, some money. The, the, wealth, the, the window is still wide open. You know, as long as we right. have Russell Wilson, our, our Super Bowl window is open. We do need to add some things. We can't afford to just sit back and, and allow the cap to dominate us this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Schneider needs to, to put on that wizard hat. As you well, mentioned earlier, what's going to happen is they're going to, they'll yeah. kick this, they'll kick this down the road every year mm-hmm. yep. as much as they can. And there'll become a point where Wilson retires um, or has just fallen off a cliff enough that they decide to move on from him. And they'll have to rebuild the whole entire roster because they'll take all that cap hit that they keep kicking down and they go, okay, we're going to take it now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then they'll rebuild the roster because that's what they did in 2010. Mm-hmm. when Pete came in is they took it now granted they took advantage of the uncapped year to get rid of a lot of terrible contracts like TJ uh TJ Hushmanzada Hushmanzada there, there we go. go um and some of these terrible contracts without having that like killer thing but that's what they did they 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 go okay we can't keep kicking this down the road so they dumped all that bad money all in one year and rebuilt um, and they let, you know, Hasselbeck's contract expire and they, 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 w- move, they moved on from that. Um, and you have to do that at some point. You can kick, keep kicking it down the road for only so long. But what you do is you look at your roster and you look at your key players and you look at your, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Wilson's going to be the guy. So they're going to wait as long as they can with Wilson. Yeah. And they'll keep pushing this down the road. Well, as long as they don't end up with 20 or $25 million in debt you know cap space which would be horrific you don't want to do that until your team is going to start tanking and and shooting for you know top 10 draft picks and stuff but um yeah no i agree i think you got to do what you got to do in order to stay uh at the the top level of competitiveness you know it's interesting seattle's gone from nine wins to 10 wins to 11 wins to 12. Mm -hmm. um let's talk about pete carroll for for a minute uh does pete get credit for turning this team around uh, hiring a new coaching staff, uh, doing the quote unquote reset, uh, back in 2017, um, and, and being, uh, competitive again after a couple of years where, where they weren't from, does he get credit? No. Does he deserve the credit? Yes. Because he, I mean, look what, look what he, this is a team that went nine and seven. They were above 500. This was a winning team. And he goes, that's not good enough. And he, scrapped his entire coaching staff he jettisoned a bunch of high-priced uh very good players like richard sherman and michael bennett in order to reset the culture of the team and they got better record-wise um even as their talent slipped they won 10 games and yeah. they made the playoffs they made the playoffs every year this was you and i have been talking you've been doing this a long time bill uh we were saying at the time <laughs> that this that he's not going to admit it but there's a three-year process to unloading all the contracts yes, exactly. of guys like Cliff Averill and um, Cam Chancellor, who they didn't want to get rid of, but because of injury, their careers ended. And um, Earl Thomas, who there was a lot going on there with him and, and all of that, and, and Sherman, and, and, and it was a three-year process. And over the three years of rebuilding, what's happened, this team has continued to win. They've continued to be competitive. Um they won the division with 12 wins this year and they they're not done. The offensive line last year was let's see what we can throw together with like 
um, you know, random cast offs and, you know, bargain uh, basement, you know, like sale pieces. And, and now they're like, okay, now that we've got these other pieces like DK Metcalf and such in place, now we can actually address the offensive line, which we have needed to do, but can only do so much per season. Like the rebuild is still going and they've been very good to great. Well, I think what we've seen too, I mean, those are all great points and we have talked about all those things. I think what we've seen through this process is the floor that Russell Wilson brings to the team. Nine wins. That's the floor. I don't think that you can, you can get any lower with a Russell Wilson team. I think he's going to pull you along. I think he's alone is good for at least seven of those wins. You add a couple pieces around him. You've got nine wins and, and it just builds from there. Dana, what do you think of uh, the job that Pete Carroll's done? Not not just this year, but throughout the process, mm-hmm. what he's had to 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 endure and go through and prevail over. And where do you think the team is now? This seems like a, a fairly critical juncture. It seems like one of the most consequential decisions that Pete has uh, with this offensive coordinator position mm-hmm. coming up. Not only because of Russell Wilson and the opportunities that that presents, but Pete's legacy as well. Pete's going to be, uh, 70, what, 71, 72 this year. Um, and it's, it's, it's approaching the situation where the window is now, um, open at the end of, of his career. And we don't know exactly when that's going to come. He's contract to runs through 2025. Um, so he's, he's got potentially four more seasons, but, um, you know, um, sorry, Keith mentioned um, that he would have maybe three years left. And I think that's realistic. And mm-hmm. what do you think of, of Pete and where we're at with, with him and with this decision coming up and with his relationship with Russell Wilson? Um, I am not a Pete apologist. I, I do not think Pete Carroll is a perfect head coach. I don't think there is such a thing. Um, and if it, that has never been proven more, it's this year in new England, right? There is no such thing as the perfect head coach. Um, Pete has his flaws. He's real stubborn on some stuff. And yet at the same time, I think that it is hard to argue with what he's done with this team over his tenure with Seattle. And here is what you said, I think is really the most important point of all of this, this offensive coordinator hire is probably the most important hire of his career. And I think the reason for that is we have Russell Wilson here. Can they get him to here? Can they get that offense to here? Um, you know, Russell Wilson is not a perfect quarterback and there's a million people out there who love to list out all of every single flaw he has, but you're right. He wins consistently, consistently. And he and Pete have the exact same mentality of the one game at a time. Don't get too worked up. They, they work well together. But why I think this offensive coordinator hire is so important, and I'm not the only one that said this, this is all over the internet, is that this is probably the heir apparent. They need to look at who this OC is, bring him in, and can he become the next head coach of the Seattle Seahawks? Can Pete groom him to continue to work with Russell, who easily could have seven to 10 more years in this league if we're doing what, you know, Tom Brady is doing. And so could, could this person continue that legacy, continue to work with Russell, that sort of thing. And that's why I think it's so, so important. 
it also then will cement him um, as being one of the best coaches, you know, in the league, in history, whatever you want to say it. I know that that's going to make people explode when I just said that. But the thing of it is, is that what Pete Carroll has done is he's brought an identity to this team. He brought a philosophy to this team and it wasn't just willy nilly. And he built this team along with John Snyder bit by bit, piece by piece over time, finding his players, some that stuck longer than others, some that played better than others. And they kept the identity. Look at these teams that are a mess. Look at, you know, look at the jets, look at, at, you know, Jacksonville, look at us. They're constantly searching for an identity and who they are. Seattle does not have that worry. They know who they are, but this offensive coordinator position, I think will cement Pete as one of the best. If that OC then continues on with Seattle, with Russell, and with this philosophy that has done so well for them. Yeah, yeah no, I, I absolutely I, agree. Yeah, I mean, you made some great points there. You're right. Pete is a perfect coach, and I don't want to um, make it sound like I'm being a Pete apologist either. Like His in-game management and some of the decisions oh, so that he makes, it's really <laughs> frustrating. And at least he stopped with the what he, what he called hormonal... Um, play challenges. Um, it's true. Uh, at least, you know, he has gotten control over that over the last couple of years, but there, he, there he is flawed. But what you were saying is one of the most overlooked parts of what a head coach does is establish and maintain and cultivate the culture mm-hmm. of the organization. And, you know, you look at, um, uh, that is that is that is the extreme like thing that Pete Carroll is great at, and that is developing and cultivating and creating this winning culture. Um, and it has been awesome to see. And yeah, he's not a great it, X and O guy. It's easy to be a fan of that. Yeah, he's not a great X and O guy. He's not a great guy in terms of his ability to you know know when to call timeouts and and that kind of stuff. Um, but man, you know, those guys, you know, those guys work hard every day. They play hard on Sundays. They try, think there is never any doubt that those guys have each other's back and they, they, they are just entirely bought in to what they're trying to do. And I think it was uh, in an interview with uh, Jamal Adams, he was just talking about the difference between Seattle and the Jets. And it wasn't just, oh, you know, the coaches are actually know what they're doing and that kind of stuff, but it was the players, right? The players here, they didn't go into the meetings for the film room and sit there and look forward and like, okay, we've got to be here. No, they were there early. They had notes out. They were taking notes. They were studying. They were asking questions. They really cared about what they were doing in the film room. And at and, the end, they had a basketball shooting competition. <laughs> Yeah, because what the heck? <laughs> but, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but that's because they get along. But it, yeah, it's it's, it's it's fun. It's the not just the culture of fun and the music and that they play at training camp and that kind of stuff. But it's also how seriously they take the little things. Mm-hmm. And you know that, believe it or not, that comes from Pete. It he demands it of his coaches. He demands it of the players. And he's always had leaders like Bobby Wagner and Russell Wilson that demand it of themselves first and then of right. the people around them second um, that that pushed that through. And it, it's completely changed the culture in Seattle from where they were under Mora um, and the last couple of years under Holmgren where nobody cared yep. about what was really going weird. on. 
And that is why this team wins consistently every year is because everybody cares so damn much. Mm-hmm. And they didn't before. And the analytics crowd, you know, they like to eat Pete up because, you know, he didn't care about analytics or it didn't seem from his game plan that he cared about analytics. And that's what I think this year has shown us about Pete is that he is willing to adjust. He is willing to change. He's willing to take some of that information that's n- no not old school, it's new school, and, and adapt to that too. And I, I think that that just goes to show that he is looking forward um, and, and ready, ready to kind of meld with the rest of the NFL at this, where a lot of coaches his age, hello, yeah. New England. You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, there's a, there's a myth out there that Pete is not adaptable. Yeah. Uh, Pete is one of the most adaptable coaches I've seen. I mean, and, and that 2017 purge proved that, Mm -hmm. uh, he was, you know, he could have been set in the ways he could have retired after that contract and kind of gone out. Um, and he did not, he remade himself. He remade the team. He remade the coaches and rededicated himself to putting it back together again and was successful at that. Now, yeah, we all want to go further in the playoffs. That's the goal. I think with this particular team, that's why the level of disappointment with the offseason, with the way that the season ended, is so profound. Mm-hmm. Because we did expect this team to be able to go a little further. Uh, the defense came on. The offense never put it together. You know, if we're being honest, the way, you know, the last five or six games really dictated the fact that we were going to be a one-and-done one team this year. It just wasn't going to come together. And, you know, the, the, at the beginning of the year, we were going, our offense is awesome, but we're going to be one and done because our defense sucks. <laughs> a tale of two seasons. Yeah, it, it, was, it was completely like that. So, um, you know, so going forward, my confidence level is still high. I believe that Pete is, you know, a defensive guy first and foremost. He's not going to allow the defense to, to slough off. So they're going to come back fully charged and ready to go again. Not worried mm-hmm. about that. We're going nope. to get a new OC in here that's going to be able to correct some of the things that we know that need to be corrected. Um, as we mentioned right at the top, we're not talking about running the ball to the point where we're leading the league in rushing attempts and so forth. We have Russell Wilson. We have one of the best weapons in the, in the, in the, the NFL. Um, we're going to use that. We're going to maximize that. We're going to maximize hopefully DK Metcalf's opportunities. I think there's still a lot left on the table with DK. Um, he's not just a long ball catching kind of a guy. Let's get him in open space and see what happens. We know what he can do in open space when he has opportunities. I just don't think he has enough of them. Well, no, the Seahawks, despite having DK Metcalf and also, you know, Lockett, who's who's not only fast, but also shifty, um, were, I think they were 31st in the league in, in yards after the catch. That's that's terrible. That's, that's look, crazy. You look at the, you know, the weapons that this team has and, and, and the ability of those guys to run after they get the ball in their hands and they couldn't generate any yards after the catch. I mean, again, this is why this offensive coordinator um, – like hire is so important. You've got to get someone because even if you just take what Seattle did this last year and actually make the adjustments like they should have along the way, you know, this is, this is a team that would have won one more. They would, they would have been contended for the Super Bowl. Honestly think they could have beat Tampa. Um, if the offense, even if they weren't as great as they were early on, if they were, um, halfway between where they were early on and where they were at the end, this is a very tough, out in any playoff game yeah Um, but they worked because they didn't have any of that going for them from their um offensive scheme generators right um whether you want to put that all in schottenheimer or whether you want to um 
blame other people involved, uh, fine. But the people who were coming up with the scheme were taking things away from the productivity of this team, not adding to it. And so you get a better coordinator in, a real coordinator in, and suddenly this team takes off again. And I'm, I, you just, I, this, this is a, a firing that had to happen, had yeah. to happen. Well, I, you and know, and I think Pete has it right. I really honestly do. When you really look at it and what he's actually said, um, I think that, that, that it's true that the team kind of lost its way a little bit, lost mm-hmm. its identity. Um, you know, and you've got to own that identity. You've got to build around that identity. You know, one of the identities is Russell Wilson, but the other one is an amazing rushing attack with a power run game that runs you over and, and inflicts its will on you. There were too many times during the season when defenses were dictating terms to us. That can't happen in this offense with Russell Wilson. We need to be able to dictate terms to the defense. And one of the ways you do that is running the ball down their throat and running the ball and effectively run when you're closing out games. Um, and other than that, you know, Wilson's still going to be able to have his deep shots. He's excellent at that. We're not going to take that away. That's not going to, we're going to enhance that by allowing some tempo into the game, by allowing some short crossing routes and, uh, throwing to the running backs out of the backfield and spreading the defense out a little bit, drawing those safeties up. I mean, all of those things are important in order for the offense and Russell Wilson to be successful. I think Pete's got it right. I, I think that what he said has been misinterpreted. And it's gone to the extreme now. And I think hopefully as the new hire comes in, that will come back to the center and we can all get along again on Seahawks <laughs> Twitterverse, right? So um No, that won't happen. Oh come on. <laughs> see, see, Seahawks, Seahawks Twitter will never get along. I mean oh, there's been um, moments. And I, I, I say this as someone who's who's um a well ingrained member of it. Uh we thrive on drama. And that's all we really care about. <laughs> it seems like everybody comes together on the on the Josh Cashman uh, little uh, videos. Um, but uh, anyway, um, I think that's it. I, it, it. Do you have anything else to add that you want to wrap this thing up with, Dana? No, I think that I think the disappointment because of what we thought was going to happen after going five and zero and the way we ended, I think that got into the brains of some people that it didn't that this team wasn't worth um, the praise they were getting at the beginning of the year. And I think that that is incorrect. And I hope that people take this off season and and really kind of look at this team and realize how lucky they are with the players that they have. And, and that really it's not a, a, not a big overhaul to get them back to the Super Bowl. There's a, there's kind of a narrative out there that Russell Wilson's broken and he can't be fixed, all that kind of stuff. What do you say to that? I think it's ridiculous. I, I get, I, and I don't like quarterbacks. That's what I, I say that all the time. I'm a defense lover. I think quarterbacks are overrated and I have to, I'm forced to defend Russell Wilson every single week. And it drove me crazy. Here's the thing. You know, Russell Wilson is still one of the best quarterbacks in this league. He had a bad half of a season that his coordinator couldn't help change up to get him back to where he needed to be. And yes, every season he has a couple of games where he doesn't look good. And I would like for you to go look at any single quarterback other than maybe Patrick Mahomes, who also has some games where he didn't look great, you know, and and, and say that that's not true. Russell Wilson is Winning who in the he's NFL always been. Is hard. Hard. And and it depends on your division. We play in the toughest division in the league, and there's so much to it. 
And I say this all the time and I'll say it again. So much of football is luck. And I know that people don't want to hear that because they can't, you can't chart luck on a grad on a grid or on a graph, but it is so much of football is luck. And, and this year there was a lot of things that just didn't go Seattle's way. It doesn't make them a bad team. It doesn't make Russell Wilson a bad quarterback. It just means they have to make some adjustments. And I think they're going to. Keith, what do you think? Do you um, think we're going to be good with with all this cap stuff going on and the lack of draft fine. and all that stuff? How the are we going to get through to, it? The, the thing you have to look at is not just what's going on with Seattle. Seattle's, Seattle's offseason does not happen in a vacuum. Look at the rest of the league. Look at the other contenders in the NFC. Uh, the Saints are $100 million underwater in their cap. They have to shed $100 million of People that are currently not, this isn't just the people who are their contracts are expiring and whatnot. No, those don't count. Of the people who are under contract for the 2021 season, they have to cut a hundred million dollars out their payroll to get under the cap. Um that is crazy. Right? Yeah. Green 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 Bay is underwater, right? Tampa is underwater. Um the other contenders, like the Rams are underwater. Um the Seahawks are going to be fine. The Seahawks have cap space to spend. Not a lot, but some. But the other contenders, the other playoff teams, don't. They're in a world of hurt. And so you're going to see um, the league has to make adjustments. The cap's going to go up to help those teams out. Um, and you're going to see some really good players from those other teams become available for Cam Jordan. Cam Jordan. I'm just going to keep saying Cam Jordan's name out loud till someone listens to me. That's all. I'm yeah. Say. I mean, you're going to, you're going to, well, you're going to have to be um, flexible and patient. Yes. You're going to, you're going to see some really good talent become available for way less than you ever dreamed because nobody has cap room because everybody's underwater because of the COVID uh, drop in revenue and the, and the salary cap going down. And so you're going to see a team be able to restock much cheaper than you ever thought they would be able to. And the Seahawks are going to be fine. Just And there's going to be a lot of one-year deals this year. There's going to be a ton of one-year deals. Yep. And if you're a player, you want a one-year deal because you know that the market this year is going exactly. to be tiny and the market next year is going to explode when the, when the salary cap comes back. And I think there's a new uh, TV deal coming down the road too. So yep. that's going to add to the pile. Yep. Be great. Yeah. All right. Let's let's get out of here. Thank you, Dana, for coming on the show again. I think it's your always fourth, awesome fourth to have you time. here. Yeah, thanks, guys. I love coming on and chatting with you guys. It's a very positive environment, and I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Do we wear that as a badge of honor, or or I hope so because I, I certainly do. I wear my positivity as a badge. Yeah, of honor. We're we're pretty positive, but I think we're realistic. For sure, I mean, we're, we're we try to blend the two. We try to stay away from the negative column. So the, the positive and the realistic together, I think make, you know, is kind of where we, where our lane is. And um, yeah, it's good having you on and uh, adding to the, the discussion about some, some really important stuff in the off season as we approach free agency and the, the senior bowls this week. So we're starting to look at, at prospects in earnest uh, as we look forward to the draft, all that kind of stuff. So we'd, uh, we'd enjoy having you back. Uh, maybe before the draft at some point we can talk uh, players and scheme fits and all that fun stuff. Cause that's the anytime fun, fun I'd stuff. love it. It would awesome. be great. 
Keith? Or, or we could do just just let her come in and, and take my spot and then uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I wouldn't give this up. This is this is this is one of my my the favorite parts of the week and, and I love it. But um yeah, we'd love having you on here. You're such a great guest. So Thank thanks you. for coming on. Absolutely. So Dana, where we can, where can we find you on social media and the internet? Oh my heaven. Okay. So on Twitter, it's at Dana OG. I think most Seahawks fans have found me by now at this point. Um, and then of course at our turf, fb.com. Cause I am a writer for our turf football. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's come and chat with me. I, I love it when people talk to me and they want to talk about, you know, the team and the scheme. And I do cover the AFC and NFC West both. And so my, my timeline is very diverse and I actually love that because then I get information from fans all over the NFL and it, it just makes it a lot more fun. Yeah. You're a, you're a good follow. You're a good person. And, uh, it shows on social media, which is a hard thing to do. So to have that come, come through. So, and Keith, uh, Keith's at Myers NFL on Twitter. And, uh, you can follow uh, myself at NWC Hawk. The show is at Hawks playbook on Twitter. Seahawksplaybook.com has all of the podcasts archives and, uh, YouTube. We've got a YouTube channel as well as all of your, uh, podcast apps. You can uh, download our show onto your feed. Make sure you subscribe and you can get the show updated every week. And so until next time, go Hawks. Go Hawks. Seahawks Playbook Podcast listeners, thanks for joining us for another edition of the show. You can find us on Twitter. Bill is at NWSeahawk. Keith is at Myers NFL. And the show is at Hawks Playbook. You can listen and subscribe to the show at SeahawksPlaybook.com.